I wanted to talk about our ideal. And it's kind of cheating, actually, because you can't do a, a, a poor lecture on, on, our, on the ideal of God. Uh, but you can make some mistakes about what to call it. Uh, at first, I was thinking, you know, the Vedantic ideal or the ideal of the Vedas or whatnot. But as I got into the first portion of putting the talk together, I, I, I kind of realized that there's, there's really no limiting adjunct on that at all. So I just called it our ideal because it's everybody's ideal. There's not a person in the world who would not take this on as an ideal if they, if they were presented with it. You know, the ideal of, of love, the ideal of unity, the ideal of, you know, unending support and, and uh, love of God and being, uh, you know, manifesting it in one another, seeing it in one another. So I was very excited about that and wanted to go and, uh, and, and uh, just see where the mind goes. Uh, my hope is, uh, you know, as you kind of zone out during the lecture, uh, zone out in your own ideal of, of what this is, of what, this, of, of what your ideal is. What brings you here? You know, what makes you concerned about uh, your life and, uh, and finding this truth and uh, these things inside? Before we jump into that, I want to uh, go through my, my own form of a mantra, I guess, or, or uh, my own form of chanting. And that's just to remind myself and us of, of uh, the things that are important. I always start my lectures this way to kind of get my own mind in the right place and to hopefully bring us together into a, a, a more perfect place. I always start by remembering that Takor considered the most important component of religion to be uh, sincerity and earnestness of heart. And uh, he says that... that I <laughs> He says, he says that if you have a sincere and earnest heart, that even if you make a mistake in your spiritual life or if you're practicing something wrong or thinking something wrong, that God himself will take, uh, will take responsibility for, uh, for setting you right and for giving you a teacher and for bringing you along the path. And so I always like to make that commitment to myself and, and to, in my way to make a prayer of that, that uh, during this time together that we'll all make that effort to be sincere to be earnest uh, uh, in, our, uh, in our facing of the truth, in our studies of the scripture, in our being together. The second one I got from Jesus growing up in the Christian tradition, uh, when he says the most important uh, commandment of all is love. He said the love of God and the love of each other as you love yourself. And Vedanta for me brought both of those branches of love into one, into that understanding that, that eventually those two unite, that idea of God and the idea of self. And so for us, together this morning in our spiritual petri dish here, or each other's experiment in spiritual life, uh, is to practice that, to, to look at each other with the benefit of the doubt, with eyes of, of equanimity, love and openness, um, kindness, you know, uh, encouragement to help each other along, to be committed to love. And the third is like it, when, again, from Thakur, from Ramakrishna. He said uh, when he was throwing out, he was sitting on the banks of the Ganga, throwing out the pairs of opposites one day, kind to try and see the unity in all things. You know, he says, here's your good and here's your bad, mother. Take them both. Give me pure love for you. And when he came to truth, he couldn't do it. He realized that he, he couldn't say, take your truth and take your untruth. He realized that they were fundamental to the spiritual path. And so to make ourselves committed uh, to the idea of truth, 
to say things that are true, and more importantly, uh, to be true within. You know, sometimes when we face the scriptures, there's difficult things to hear. We don't measure up, whatnot. We get challenged on the way we are, uh, that we might be willing to, to take truth as a measure and to feel that challenge inside and to, to stand up to it, to rise up to it and go beyond. So that's my commitment before Ramakrishna and before you and our sharing of that time together in the next 45 minutes or so. I'd like to go on with my tradition here and read a, 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 a poem from Hafiz, a mystic from uh, the 12th century, I think it is. This one's called Tripping Over Joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think that you have a thousand serious moves. So this ideal of religion, there's a lot of turmoil going on, uh, in, uh, probably always going on, but certainly I've noticed it in the last year or so, on the web. You know, it seems like the younger generation is, is quite willing, and not only willing, but enthusiastic about throwing religion overboard. You know, they see the news, they see the conditions of the world, they see kind of what religion looks like it's contributing, at least what's making the news uh, in the world, and they're ready to chuck it out. This idea of God is passé, unimportant, religion divides, religion kills, you know, uh, all of that poison. And, uh, you know, it's true. It's true uh, at one level, at a very low level. But the, the irony of it is that the principles of religion, the realizations of religion, are, are completely other than that lower manifestation. And uh, the further irony of it, and I think it's because of the way we think of religion, especially in this country, I, other countries I think feel differently, that we have this idea of secular versus religious, you know, that there's a division between the two, you know, and we kind of compartmentalize our lives and we uh, create a space for our religion and for our practice and then we go to work or, and, uh, you know, then we go vote or then we go whatever. So we've compartmentalized these things. But in religion, uh, you know, in, in the ideal, uh, there's, no, there's no difference. Life is religion. You know, the world is scripture. Experience is learning and understanding God. Everything you look at and see is betraying his nature to you somehow, is opening your mind in some way, developing you in some, in some method to go forward, that your identity with the true self will be realized, that your true nature of freedom will manifest and be expressed. When talking about Sri Ramakrishna, there was a gentleman, uh, Pratap Chandra Mazumdar, who was the right hand of uh, Keshab Sen with the Brahmo Samaj in Calcutta, which was kind of a Christianized Hindu movement. I'm sure somebody will knock me over for saying that, but that's what it seemed like to me <laughs> when I read a little bit about it. Um, but he was, he was rather critical of, of Ramakrishna in some ways uh, because of, he considered him an idolater for one, you know, because he worshiped Mother uh, Kali at the temple there, was a priest. And, uh, you know, kind of was chastised him at different points during, during his life. But after, uh, uh, when he was asked about Ramakrishna later on in an interview, he said something that was so beautiful to me and, and, and so, 
so much a part of what I find to be the ideal of knowing God, of, of, of being religious, of being spiritual, of looking for the truth within. He says of Ramakrishna, his religion is ecstasy. His worship means transcendental insight. His whole nature burns day and night with a permanent fire and a fever of strange faith and healing. So long as he is spared to us, gladly shall we sit at his feet and learn from him the sublime precepts of purity, the precepts of unworldliness, of spirituality, and of inebriation in the love of God. That is religion. That's the ideal. That's the ideal that we share. That's the measure, you know. Our religion is not, is not this. <laughs> our religion's not lectures and not learning and not whatnots. Our, our, our lecture, our, our, our religion is ecstasy. You know, that, that, that absolute union with the divine, that falling in love with the beloved, that tripping over ourselves in realizations of fearlessness, of unity, of giving and caring and compassion, those things that just spill off of us because of our, our realization of the divine, because of our understanding of our nature, our ability to remove the obstacles that, that will let us openly and freely expound and, and, and act out to manifest that divine nature. And we can sit here with Thakur in our meditations and in our readings and sit there and to learn of the sublime precepts of purity, unworldliness, spirituality, and inebriation in the love of God. Those two things there, probably because I come from a hedonistic background, those two things really are attractive to me. This idea that, that uh, Takor, you know, that, that his religion is ecstasy and that he talks about uh, this inebriation in the love of God. You know, I, I, I like that and I focus on that because I just, I just feel like if that we as spiritual people and the world as a whole understood a little bit more of, of that nature of religion, that that is the realization, you know, that that is the sign of, of being a spiritual person. There'd be a lot more interest. There'd be a lot more, uh, you know, uh, clamoring to find out and to go forward and to learn. This is our ideal. In his lecture, The God of Love is His Own Proof, Swamiji says, his ideal becomes one of perfect love, one of perfect fearlessness of love. The highest ideal of such a person has no narrowness of particularity about it. It is love universal, love without limits, love itself, absolute love. Our ideal is love in its, its, its most open and fresh form, free of judgments, free of particularities, free of divisiveness, free of lower and higher, pure love. Caring, compassionate, giving, because it's your nature, not because it's your practice. Opening up to the world in, 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 in every effort to be helpful, because it's your nature and not because it's your practice. To know God in his highest ideal, not because it's our religion, but because it's our nature, the nature of every human being, the nature of every one of us, and to see that in each other first, before we have a name, before we have a sex, before we have an age, before we have a job, to see that perfection, to see that love, that innate, that innate self that's begging, pushing, urging, trying to find its way out and its expression in each one of us. And to have that respect first and foremost 
to everyone, every, every being that we approach, to have that respect first. We start there, and then the interaction follows. We start there with that love, that understanding, that recognition of unity, of oneness, of that sublime purity that's trying desperately to express itself. The master says to Bhagavan Das, the eternal religion, the religion of the rishis, has been in existence from time out of mind and will exist eternally. There exist in this Sanatana Dharma all forms of worship, worship of God with form, worship of God of the impersonal deity as well. It contains all paths, the path of knowledge, the path of devotion, and so on. It's this recognition that every single person is making their way forward in the best way that they know how in their moment. You know, that, that idea when I, when I first stumbled into Vedanta, when Vivekananda says that there's no right and wrong, it's not that you're right and they're wrong. It's the idea of moving from a lower truth to a higher truth. <laughs> Nobody believes something that's wrong for them. Everybody believes that what they think and what they know is right. That's part of the problem, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> But it should also be respected. Our first job as spiritual people, as, as people looking for that divinity, our first job with somebody that disagrees with us is to find out where they're standing when they're looking at us, to sit down next to them and find their place of rightness so that we can see. And then without any judgment and perhaps without any motive at all, walk forward with them, be a help to them, Help, their manifest, help them manifest that divinity. Help you manifest your divinity. By, by having that togetherness be a manifestation of the love that, that's inherent in both of your natures. To bring one another together. Anytime you have an argument, stop. Stop. The argument's not necessary. Your first duty, your first duty is to find that place of rightness, where that person is standing, so that you can respect them for what they're thinking and what they're believing for the path that they're, that they're trying to tread. And once they feel that respect from you, they may be more open to your idea or to your knowledge or to your input. There was a great uh, uh, preacher, a friend of mine, uh, Neil, when I was growing up, that made a huge impact on my life. And that was one of the things he told me very early on. I, I, was, a, I was a good conservative uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, Christian and, uh, you know, rather judgmental in my early days, as many are, I guess. And uh, he, he once told me, he says, you can never correct somebody more than they believe that you love them. And that always made a very big impact on me. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't say you can't correct them more than you love them. He says you can't correct them more than they believe you love them. You know, so you have to have that effort, that you have to have that knowledge inside. When you go to bring somebody forward, you have to make sure have you, have you demonstrated your respect for them? Have you demonstrated your love for them? Have you demonstrated being on their side with them? And do they believe it? Do they believe it? That's our ideal. That's our ideal, not our practice. How does it come forward? There's a beautiful story, and I wasn't going to have this story or share it this morning, because I've already done it a couple times in lectures elsewhere. But I woke up in the middle of the night and just, uh, you know how that sometimes happens. You just wake up and something comes into your mind and you're just enamored of it. You can't get rid of it. And so I actually got up in the middle of the night and turned on <laughs> my tablet and started typing in searches to find this passage and to talk about it. 
It's about a woman that goes to see Ramakrishna, a woman who's very dear to my heart uh, because I, I really identify with, with her <laughs> situation when she approaches religion, when she approaches Thakur, the master. The story goes like this. After a time, Bhagavati, an old maidservant of the temple proprietor, entered the room and saluted the master from a distance. Sri Ramakrishna bade her to sit down. The master had known her for many years. In her younger days, she had lived a rather immoral life, but the master's compassion was great. Soon he began to converse with her. The master, now you are pretty old. <laughs> Have you been feeding the Vaishnavas and holy men and thus spending your money in a noble way? Bhagavati smiling, which is to her credit, right? <laughs> How many people would smile with that greeting? She's like, mm, how can I say that? <laughs> and Master says, well, have you been to Vrindavan, Banaras, and the other holy places? Now it says she's shrinking back a little bit, Bhagavati. Mm, how can I say that? Oh, I have built a bathing place. My name is inscribed on a slab there. The master, oh, indeed. Bhagavati, yes, sir, my name, Srimati Bhagavati Dasi. It's written there. The master with a smile, how nice. All right. <laughs> that whole interaction is great, right? I mean, the first time I walked in, uh, you know, in, in, into a temple, you know, there's that, that joke I always told my friends. I was like, if I went in there, it's going to fall on me. You know, these ideas. And, you know, here it's realized for, for this poor woman, because, I mean, she's, you know, she's having it drawn out. The master's saying, have you, have you given your money to, you know, holy things, to write things? She's like, mm, no, not really. Have you, well, have you at least gone on pilgrimage, you know, on vacation somewhere? Mm, mm, mm. Oh, I've built a bathtub, you know, <laughs> a public bath for people. But the master's all about that. You know, he, he doesn't, he just keeps going till he finds something good, you know. He starts here and goes here and goes here. And then she volunteers and he's like, great, he's happy, he smile. He gives her some encouragement with that. So much so that she gets a little bold. You know, she gets a little bold. And it says that emboldened by the master's words, Bhagavati approached and saluted him, touching his feet. <laughs> Here's the part, wow. Like a man stung by a scorpion, Sri Ramakrishna stood up and cried out, Govinda, Govinda! A big jar of Ganges water stood in a corner of the room. He hurried there, panting, and washed with holy water the spot that this maidservant had touched. The devotees in the room were amazed to see this incident. Bhagavati sat as if struck dead. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine that scene? The, 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 just the pain that she would have, would have felt? I mean, that sense of judgment that was there, you know, that, that having your, your unworthiness so publicly and efficiently demonstrated, you're just sitting there as if you've been struck dead, probably just wishing that you had been, you know, just like, mm, my God. And I struggled with that for years because I really felt like, Takor, if you're everybody's God, you can't treat anybody like that. You can't do that. Because I stopped here on the story. I didn't, I didn't keep going. <laughs> this story has a beautiful ending that comes into our ideal in a lovely way. 
The gospel goes on to say, in order to relieve her mind of all embarrassment, the master said tenderly, listen to a few songs. And he sits down next to her and sings her some songs about mother, about God. There's nobody else in the gospel that the master sits and sings personally a song to them about mother. So he hits her heart, you know, lets her know, you do have to take this seriously. You do have to respect yourself in your spiritual life. You do have to make your efforts. You do have to call yourself higher. It is not okay to stop where you are. It is not okay to compromise and to be less than you can be. He makes that point painfully clear to her. But then he sits down next to her and he sings this song to her. Dwell, O mind, within yourself. Enter no other's home. If you but seek there, you will find all you are searching for. God, the true philosopher's stone, who answers every prayer, lies hidden deep within your heart, the richest gem of them all. How many pearls, how many precious stones are scattered all about the outer court that lies before the chamber of your very own heart. He turns her toward the ideal. Our ideal is not an external thing. It's not something we're grasping for or running after or trying to find or trying to build or trying to put on a banner. He turns us toward our ideal. Our ideal is our very own nature. He says, it is Sat Chit Ananda itself that has become all, the creator, Maya, the universe, and living beings. Sat Chit Ananda, existence, knowledge, bliss. That is our nature. We've talked in the past that you have no right to call yourself anything else in truth that isn't one of these three things. You're not allowed to say, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm evil, I'm beautiful. <laughs> Those are not qualities of yours. Your qualities are existence, perfect, immortal, undying. Your nature is knowledge, intelligence. Your nature is bliss, love absolute, undivided, infinite. I thought it would be fun to take each of these components, Satchitananda, and just kind of search through everything that Thakur and Ramakrishna taught about them to kind of get more of an insight into what that is, more insight into what I am, to what we are, to what's trying to manifest through us, to find out the source of uh, these frustrations at, at not being what we, what we think we want to be. Existence, Sat. Vivekananda says in Kyana Yoga, we have to first of all give up this superstition of the body. We are not the body. Next must go the further superstition that we are the mind. We are not the mind. It is but the silken body, not a, not a part of the soul. The mere word body applied to nearly all things includes something common among all bodies. So there's something common and that is existence. The thing that we all share in common is this existence. Our bodies are symbols of thought, and the thought themselves are in turn symbols of something behind them, 
the real one existence, the soul of our soul, the self of the universe, the life of our life, our true self. As long as we believe ourselves to be even the least different from God, fear will remain. But when we know ourselves to be the one, fear goes. Of what can we be afraid? Your nature is existence and you share it with everybody in the room. So many times we think our thoughts are unique, our conditions are unique, our pains are unique, our situations are unique. They're not. You are experiencing them through everybody in this room. Everybody in this room has a component in their life that matches a component in your life, their love for their family, the pain of their children, the pain of co-workers, the love of lovers, the pain of lost lovers. All of us are going forward Assuming this uniqueness that divides us, that makes us alone, that puts us in a room to cry by ourselves unnecessarily. Because we don't recognize that everybody is one. That we're seeing this through a thousand different eyes. Hearing it through a million different ears. Walking together. And if we could bank on that oneness, bank on that shared existence, our compassion could pour out so much more liberally so much more without fear for one another. Our trust and ability to open up, to share these things, would increase a thousandfold. Turn deep within, O mind. Dive deep and find these gems that are in the courtyard of your very own self. Vivekananda gave a lecture called The Open Secret. And in this idea of existence, he says how wonderful it all is. Look at the human eye, how easily it can be destroyed. And yet, the biggest suns exist only because your eyes see them. The world exists because your eyes certify that it exists. Think of that mystery. These poor little eyes. A strong light or a pin can destroy them. And yet, the most powerful engines of destruction the most powerful cataclysms, the most wonderful of existences, millions of suns and stars and moons and earth, all depend for their existence upon and have to be certified by these two little things. They say, nature, you exist, and we believe that nature exists. So with all of our senses, what is this? Where is weakness? Who is strong? What is great and what is small? What is high? What is low in this marvelous interdependence of existence where the smallest atom is necessary for the existence of the whole? Who is great? Who is small? It is past finding out. And why? Because none is great and none is small. All things are interpenetrated by that infinite ocean. Their reality is that infinite. And whatever there is on the surface is but that infinite. The tree is infinite. So is everything that you see everything that you feel, every grain of sand, every thought, every soul, everything that exists is infinite. Infinite is finite, and finite is infinite. This is our existence. This is that notion of waking up. Every religion tells its practitioners, wake up, wake up. And you're so as a kid, you're so confused about it. You're like, what? I got out of bed to come here. When <laughs> you're talking about wake up. But it's that idea, we sit in a room and we, we, we assume understanding. We assume pews, 
chairs, carpets, lights, fixtures, house, people. And yet we don't know the slightest thing about any of them. We can't explain any of it. Vivekananda made that point. He says, you can, you can take even a grain of sand. You know, he was looking around for an example. He's like, a grain of sand. Take up a grain of sand. You can study that for the rest of your life and not know all there is to know about that grain of sand. But we live so comfortably within our assumed boundaries. We've given up the wonder of, of children, you know, to replace it with our assumptions of adulthood, that we understand everything. But we can't understand any of it. You know, you read science, science books for just a little bit and you begin to understand, like, wow, you're kidding me. When they tell you your body is more space than matter, you know, or the new sciences where they're learning out that there's, there's really no difference between matter and energy, you know, that it's all just force, that this, they can't find anything solid <laughs> behind it all. You know, these crazy things, I don't understand a thing about science, but I, I'm a wired, a wired magazine science uh, professional. <laughs> <laughs> and I read those articles, and they just, you know, they just leave me sitting there going like, wow, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, you know, what, what can you do with that? I mean, open up to that wonder. I mean, look, for Vivekananda, it was an opportunity of worship, you know? It was an opportunity of worship to give credit to, to the infinite, to the unknowing. He said, how marvelous all of this is. You know, what a wonder all of this is, this play, this utterly undefinable, infinite, swirling mass of, of inex the inexplicable. It doesn't make sense. There's no way that this can be. You know, that's one of the fundamental things you run into in, in philosophy, is that every philosophy, whether it's Kant or Hegel or any number of others that I haven't read, <laughs> they all come to that point where there's, no, there's a question you can't answer. They all come to a point where it's like the unanswerable. You can't, you can't say anything. It's like, how much more evidence do you need that this doesn't exist as we think it does? The fact that every line of philosophy, every science is telling us <laughs> no idea, can't answer that. We've got to understand Something's wrong with the way we're perceiving this. It isn't what it seems to be. You know, find the wonder in that. Find the marvel in that. You know, Brother Lawrence, oh, I always go back to him, but, but what an ideal he is, you know, that he walked his days with God, with the divine, you know, with this ideal, this absolute love as his companion in everything that he did and realized that just by doing things like cooking, cleaning the kitchen, you know, washing the grill. It's like he realized God through that, you know, the butcher in the story in the, in, 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 you know, the, that, that is told by Ramakrishna where just by even doing the most impure job, the lowest job on the social scale at, at that time in, in India anyway, that just by doing that excellently, by doing the dharma that is in front of you, you know, I sat, I sat in the shrine for six years in San Francisco wondering if I should be a monk. <laughs> Thinking, is this, am I sure about this? You, you really think this is what you should be doing? The way that question eventually got answered is I, I took it to the shrine, and I sat there one afternoon, and I was like, I've got to make up my mind. It's been six years. I can't just die wondering if this is the right thing for me. <laughs> and I sat there, and the most simple answer came to me. I thought, you fool. You are. What are you? Look, you're dressed in orange. You're sitting in a shrine in a monastery. You've been here for six years. You're pretty much a monk. What are you wondering about? 
It's pretty much happened. You know, and I, I, I hear this question quite a bit. People asking, what is my dharma? What am I supposed to be doing? What's in front of you? What's in front of you? Do it. Do it as worship. Do it excellently. Do it with the idea of giving it to your beloved. Hand it over at the end of the day, you know, or it, as soon as you're finished with it, or even while you're doing it, have that conversation about the excellence. See how nicely I'm doing this for you? <laughs> like that, share that kind of experience. How marvelous it all is in this ideal. Those are the words of Vivekananda. You know, he's so manly in every other way. And then you read something like this, and he's just giggling like a little girl, like a little schoolgirl. Ah, this is so marvelous. Look at this infinite everything. It's wonderful. It's incredible. And he jumps into it. That is your existence. Existence is your nature. For, a, you know, to use a, a very passe 90s word, celebrate that. <laughs> Have fun with that. You exist. That's a pretty great thing. That's a pretty great thing. It's a pretty awesome toy to have. Walk outside and see the sun and just stop and exist for a moment. Don't, don't think about it. Don't define it. Don't anything. Just suddenly open up to what's, what's going on. It's amazing. The fresh view of the world of a child. To open up to the wonder that is your divinity. That is existence. Knowledge, intelligence. Vivekananda starts right off by, by telling me, no one can know existence except through knowledge. So what is this knowledge? It's a very confusing answer, actually. It, it takes on a lot of levels, because it gets into, in his, in his uh, lessons on Raja Yoga and in Jnana Yoga, he takes it pretty deep. He says, take an individual man. He is first a part of undifferentiated nature. Okay. There's one of those sentences, like, He's a part of undifferentiated nature. You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> but that's the ultimate reality, right? And that material nature in him becomes changed into this mahat, a small particle of this universal intelligence. And this particle of universal intelligence in him becomes changed into egoism and then into sense organs and the finer particles of matter which combine and manufacture his body, your body. So this thing that you're not is all started by a little particle, a particle of intelligence, just a little bit of the, un a little piece of the undifferentiated, he said at first. <laughs> a little piece of the undifferentiated has formed this body in its, in, its, in its effort to manifest. He says the Atman is pure intelligence, controlling and directing prana. So this whole movement of energy in your body, this, this, this experience of being that's rolling forward with all these gears, is the Atman, pure intelligence behind it. But the intelligence we see around us is always imperfect. When intelligence is perfect, we get the incarnation, the Christ. Intelligence is always trying to manifest itself. And in order to do this, it is creating minds and bodies of different degrees of development in reality and at the back of all things, every being is equal. Every being is equal. We're all in this together. All of us have it, us a little particle. We could go really oovy groovy, just a particle of stardust, as it were. <laughs> There's a sign painted down actually on, a, I think it's Hollywood Boulevard. When you cross over the freeway, there's some sort of halfway house or something there, it's painted on the wall. And I always saw it the first few times by it, I kind of just rolled my eyes because I'm a little too cynical for it. It was like, you are stardust. 
you know, you're made of the particle of the moonbeam and whatever. And I was like, that's crazy. It's like, okay, whatever, <laughs> whatever you need. But here he's saying basically the same thing, that you are. You are, a, you are a, a, a particle, somehow an escaped or encapsulated particle of the infinite, of intelligence. And the whole point of this body, the whole point of this, this egoism that has developed around that, is its, its expression. Your, your life is about expressing that nature of intelligence, that nature of, of existence, that, that nature of love. That whole little particle has created this whole thing that you think of as yourself. For that expression, anything else that you do in your life is going to confuse you. If you think you're here for any other reason or to accomplish any other thing, you're going to be confused. You're going to feel frustrated. Your life at some point, you're going to be laying in bed one night and just think, what's my life about? I've been here for, you know, 50 years and... What? I have the same things I had when I was 20. They're just all bigger. <laughs> you know? It's like, what, 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 does that, what does that mean? You know, I was a software engineer before I joined the monastery. And I would spend my days, eight hours, ten hours a day, creating things that would be obsolete in a year. <laughs> you know? Especially in software. What a painful industry that is. I mean, every version, you're, you're done. So I thought, God, I'm going to be doing this. That's one of the things that led me to start asking these questions. I started thinking, God, I'm going to... I'm going to be doing this for, my, for, for 65 years, and then I'm going to retire. And a year after I've retired, everything I spent my life on is obsolete. <laughs> you know, version 2 is out. That's like, and my name's not on the list anymore. I just didn't want my life to be like that. I was like, what is this? What is this? And everything you do in life is going to run to that same place. You know, when I was in the monastery for a long time, I told Swami Prabhudananda, I was like, kind of discouraged. I was like, you know, all I do around here is wash dishes and mop floors and clean the bathrooms in the temple. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old, 40-something years old, and I'm, I've been doing this for eight years now. I said, I'm kind of discouraged. I feel like if I hang out here, I'm just going to be a glorified uh, home maintenance engineer, you know. <laughs> and I expected him to, you know, say, oh, uh, let's come up with something bigger for you to do or something. But he didn't. He took a bite of his toast and set it down. And he sat back and he thought for a moment. And he says, can you think of anything that isn't? A whole new perspective. You know, everything in this world is just maintenance. Just maintenance. Unless you have this ideal, unless you understand your nature. Unless you understand that your only goal, the only point of that particle of intelligence that formed this body and this mind is to express this infinite nature, this infinite divinity that is yours. So whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you know, in, 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 in the external sense, because if you define it as an attempt to manifest perfection, to manifest love, to manifest knowledge, you can do that. You can do that making tacos at a stand. You can do that sweeping a floor. You can do that writing software. You can do that, you know, being a nurse in the hospital. You can do that. You can do that walking down the street. You know, you can do it everywhere except watching television. <laughs> Just kidding. So, what is this knowledge? The master says to M, "What is vijnana? What is this higher knowledge? It is knowing God in a special way. The awareness and conviction that fire exists in wood—that's knowledge, jnana." But to cook rice on that fire, to eat the rice, to get nourishment from it, that's vijnana. To know by one's inner experience that God exists is knowledge. But to talk to him, 
to enjoy him as a child, as a friend, as master, as beloved, that is vijnana, the higher knowledge. The realization that God alone has become the universe, has become all living beings, that is the highest knowledge. To enjoy God in that special way, that's the higher knowledge. To have that inner conviction that he exists, like Brother Lawrence, to feel that presence, you know, as long as we're body identified, that's what it looks like, a presence, God's God being with you as a friend, as a child, you know, as a cohort manifesting continually around you, completely committed to you. That's knowledge. That's the knowledge that he's talking about in our nature. And the results of this knowledge, the feeling that I am the doer is the outcome of ignorance, but the feeling that God does everything is due to knowledge. God alone is the doer. All others are mere instruments in his hands. So this idea that God being the doing, that ego, that egoism, you know, that's the first shell that forms around that particle of intelligence begins to weaken, you know, begins to, to break down a little bit so that it can express more purely. It's not so obscured by the, uh, by the lens that intelligence can, can break out more purely. And you can go along for the ride. <laughs> You can see it happen before you. I tell that story every, almost every lecture. It's going to get old after a while. Of that little boy I saw in the airport in Phoenix. You know, he was at the, one of these video games with the steering wheel driving a car. Hadn't put any money in. Could hardly reach the steering wheel. And was madly just driving that car along. And his father came up and tapped him on the head. And said, Tom, Tom, come on. It's, the, it's time to get on the airplane. I can't, Dad. I can't. If I let go, the car will crash. <laughs> and his dad takes his arm and pulls him away. And he looks back. You know, and they, off they go to the airport. The car didn't crash. It was on demo mode. But he was fully convinced that he was driving that car and he was committed to it and was not going to get on the plane so that that car wouldn't crash. I learned a lot from that little kid that day in this idea that you are not the doer. You get so frustrated and so nervous about your life. You forget that you're worshiping. You stop doing things excellently because you've taken your mind off of your unfolding divinity and you've put them on some other goal, some other result, and you forget and you can't let go of the steering wheel. You grip tightly. You can't do what you need to do because you can't let go of the steering wheel because you're the doer, because you've chosen another goal. If you had just been in your state of excellence, doing your state of worship going forward, there would be something new in front of you to do with excellence. It wouldn't make any difference that it had changed. This job ends, a new job comes, there's space between the two. You're just doing things excellently in your state of worship, enjoying your unfolding, enjoying that divinity expressing itself in pure love. There is no doer but God. After attaining knowledge, a man says, Oh God, nothing belongs to me. Neither this house of worship, nor the Kali temple, nor the Brahmo Samaj. These are all yours, your wife, your son. Your family, they do not belong to me. They are all yours. This universal sharing. What's it mean to say that something belongs to God? Well, if all of us are that, it means it belongs to all of us. And it's to have that kind of freedom. When you go to, you know, <laughs> that horrible experience, you're going down, you decide you're going to be nice to uh, some homeless person you, know, you see up on the sidewalk. And you get there and you pull out your, your, your handful of bills and you're going through and you don't have a one. <laughs> you know, you've, only got, you've only got a 10 and a 20. And you're suddenly like, $10, I can't give him a $10. You know, 
When you have this kind of understanding, when you've recognized the divinity in him first, when you've recognized the same existence is in his life that's in your life, when you understand that God is the doer alone, and when you understand that nothing belongs to you, it belongs to all of us together, that $10 is just a matter of exchange. It's not an issue at all. It's changing from this set of hands of yours to that set of hands of yours. It's sharing you know, with your own family member. It's taking care of each other. It's loving each other. That is the right knowledge. That's the mature knowledge. And now last, and my favorite, <laughs> Ananda. Ananda, bliss, love. How do we know if it's authentic? How do we know what love is? Because there's lots of definitions of love, and love gets very confusing, especially when you start adding the sexual element in the today's world. Things get very confusing very quickly. You know, what is the ideal? Stumbling through this lecture and putting it together, I found three tests from Vivekananda, how you know that love is real. The first test for love is that it knows no bargaining. So long as you see a man love another only to get something from him or her, you know that this is not love, it is shopkeeping. That's the first test. That's the first test. Now I always, it's my favorite thing to do because of my own unruly nature, to test God first, you know, to test my image of God first. It's like, okay, are you bargaining with me? Do I have to be a certain thing or say a certain thing or act a certain way in order to, you know, participate in this relationship? You're saying here that it's not like that. And I have to change my idea of God. I have to change my understanding of the divine because it's not a matter of bargaining. He's not setting up a checklist of, of accomplishments for you. That love is your nature. It's his free and open gift in his unwarranted, unconditioned embrace of you. As he sees you, as he sees you, when he looks at you, he does not see the imperfect that is embarrassing you. When he looks at you, he sees the divine. He sees your nature, the fullest potential of what you will be one day, what you will know yourself to be one day. And he will speak to that, and he'll wake that up, and he'll call that out of you just by being with you. So your love with the people around you should be the same, should be the same. If you've called your friend three times this week and they haven't called back, are you upset with them? Were you looking for something back? You know, call them again. Call them as much as you want. Never expect a call back. You know? You didn't get invited to that party, you're not gonna invite them to your party. What kind of shopkeeping is that? It isn't love. It isn't love. Practice love that has no conditions, that isn't shopkeeping. The second test of love is that love knows no fear. So long as man thinks of God as, being, as a being sitting above the clouds with rewards in one hand and punishments in the other, there can be no love. Wow, that I have to change my opinions about God <laughs> after reading that. After reading that, no fear. No fear. You can assume that intimacy. Yeah, you might be wrong. You might be like, like our poor woman at the beginning. Everything that looks like pain is to, it will, will make you stronger, will make you better. There's a commitment of love under it all. There's never anything done to hurt you. 
to harm you. You know, he gave he gave our Bhagavati a great a great treat that day, a very special thing that you know she never forgot. Can you imagine? I mean, I have to look at a picture. <laughs> you know, my memories of Takwar come out of a book. You know, her memories came from a song that he sang to her. Her shrine was filled with the music of Takwar singing to her. That was her knowledge of God. She didn't think at all about the embarrassment she had felt moments before that. She remembered God singing to her. That's our God. That's your relationship. That's your birthright with the divine. To hear that music, to share in that vision, to share in that assumed love, that assumed acceptance. That you are that. No fear. Not afraid. The third is still a higher test. Love is always the highest ideal. When one has passed through the first two stages, when one has thrown off all shopkeeping, has cast off all fear, one then begins to realize that love is always the highest ideal. How many in this times, how many times in this, I love this example, it's so not like Vivekananda to say this, but he does it. He says, how many times in this world do we see a beautiful woman loving an ugly man? <laughs> how many times do we see a handsome man loving an ugly woman? What is the attraction? Lookers on only see the ugly man or the ugly woman, but not so the lover. To the lover, the beloved is the most beautiful being that has ever existed. The most beautiful being that has ever existed. And I have to test my idea of God again when he looks at me. I am his most beautiful being. You probably are too, but <laughs> that ideal, you know, that ideal. And again, we're brought to the milkmaids of Vrindavan, you know, where they were all dancing around the fire with Krishna. And the scripture says that every one of them felt like they were Krishna's favorite. That's how big God's love is. That's how big our ideal is. Everybody will be filled up and feel like you are the favorite. There's nothing wrong with feeling like you're God's favorite. It's natural and it's true because there's plenty. There's plenty of the ideal to go around. The lover has passed beyond all these things, beyond rewards, beyond punishments, beyond fear, beyond doubt, beyond scientific or any other demonstration. Sufficient to him is the ideal of love alone. And it is not self-evident, is it not self-evident that this universe is but a manifestation of this love? What is it that makes atoms unite with atoms, molecules with molecules? What causes planets to fly toward each other? What is it that attracts man to man, man to woman, woman to man, animals to animals, drawing the whole universe as it were toward one center? It is what is called love. Its manifestation, manifestation is from the lowest atom to the highest being, omnipotent, all-pervading. This is love. What manifests itself as attraction in the sentient and the insentient, in the particular and in the universal, is the love of God. It is the one motive power that is in the universe. Under the impetus of that love, Christ gives his life for humanity, Buddha even for an animal, a mother for the child, the husband for the wife, it is under the impetus of the same love that men are ready to give up their lives for their country, and strange to say, under the impetus of that same love that the thief steals and the murderer murders.
this love is the only thing that is driving the universe. We confuse it with different things. We confuse it with different things. We think that it's a love of power, but a love of power is really just wanting a place of security. You know, the thief steals because he sees his own lack. You know, he wants that security. All of these things. That's how a realized soul can see the perfection of the world. You know, when M told the master, when it wasn't M, it was one of the householders listening to the story that he was telling about Kali's play. You know, mother's just playing. This is her play. And the, the, the devotee says, ah, her play is our death. You know, and he says, ah, but who are you? And he goes on. M later uh, uh, talks about this, this idea that, that um, oh gosh, that was the wrong just this idea that love manifesting itself, that, that, that it is everywhere, that there is a perfection in all of this. When M tells the master, you know, this world, is, it's, there's so much misery in the world. Why is there so much misery? And the master says to him, what is the misery? This world is a mansion of mirth. You know, this world is a mansion of mirth. Because he sat in a place where he could see the divine acting out this play of love in the murderer, acting out this play of love in the thief, acting out this play of love in everything, in everyone. He could see the divine only, the divine first. And in that, it is a mansion of mirth. It's not the world that Fox News tells us it is. It's a mansion of mirth. <laughs> it's a mansion of mirth. Know that to be the truth, your highest ideal. Sat Chit Ananda, the creating principle, the guiding principle, the realizing principle draws us all together. The Vedanta teaches that nirvana can be attained here and now, that we do not have to wait to death to reach it. The master tells us this morning, it will avail you nothing unless you realize Satchit Ananda. There is nothing like discrimination and renunciation. The worldly man's devotion to God is momentary, like a drop of water on a red hot frying pan Perchance he looks at a flower and exclaims, ah, what a wonderful creation of God. But the spiritual man can see anything and say, ah, what a marvelous expression of God. It doesn't have to be a sunset over the ocean at Santa Barbara. It can be a discarded McDonald's bag in the parking lot. He can see the divine. That is your nature. And it will avail you nothing unless you realize it unless you come to that knowledge. And for that, there is nothing like discrimination and renunciation. <clears throat> Hafiz has a poem, Forever Dance. I am happy before I even have a reason. I am full of light even before the sky can greet the sun or the moon. Dear companions, we have been in love with God for so very, very long. What can we do now but forever dance? <laughs>